gang, you're listening to the R&R Rounds podcast. I'm Jonathan Wallace, and this is episode two of a three-part mini-series about emergency medicine education options. So really, the target audience here is medical students, maybe family residents who are contemplating possible ongoing education, whether it be a CCFPEM year, or a GP anesthesia year, or another alternative, including just challenging the exam. This may also apply to new grads who are contemplating possibly going back. But if you are another profession, or if you're a physician who is not in a position where you're contemplating going back to residency, then this episode may not be of much value to you. Go ahead and skip over this and even the next one, and we will catch you on a future episode real soon with some more interesting rural cases for you. For everybody else, This particular episode is going to look at a number of different options, the FRCP versus EM route for medical students and for family residents and possibly new grads contemplating going back, the values of doing an EM residency versus just challenging the exam, versus that GPA anesthesia residency as an alternate, versus other potential EM training options and adjuncts. Episode three, which is going to follow this, is with my friend Natasha, who is a FR resident, and she's going to actually give her thoughts on this particular episode so that you get a balanced view from both sides of the CCFPEM and FRCP coin. Okay, this is a very long episode weighing in at over an hour. I apologize, it is not typically what we do, but this is a little bit of an exception in that we are talking about career advice. I am going to try to remember to put the timings into the episode in the show notes so that you can jump forward to a specific segment if that is of interest to you. All right, without further ado, let's get into this. Hi, so I'm Sarah Douglas. I'm a fourth-year medical student at the University of British Columbia, and I train at the distributed site in Victoria called the Island Medical Program. Sarah, like many medical students, you are trying to decide what to do with the rest of your life. And in particular, you're interested in emergency medicine. And yet in Canada, we have these two options. We have the FRCPC program, which is five years emergency medicine only. And we have the CCFP, the family practice program, where you can do two years. You can graduate as a family physician. You can work in emergency departments. But you can optionally then go on to either take an additional year of residency or just work independently and challenge the exam and get the CCFPEM program, which is a little bit of an extra certificate in terms of emergency medicine. Is that more or less where you're at? Yeah, exactly. I've been trying to figure out the last four years. I've heard a lot of of discussion about this, a lot of pros and cons, been swayed one way, then the other. And I'm now in my last year and I'm you know trying to figure this out and it almost seems like I'm getting new information every year with changing job prospects and new opportunities coming up but yeah so I'm, I'm excited to hear your input well thanks yeah I'm happy to chat with you about this this is not an uncommon set of questions that medical students have when they're contemplating emergency medicine and I think I should provide a little bit of background information and just say that back in 2015 at least that was the most recent stats in Canada If you look at every patient who's receiving emergency medicine care, two-thirds of them are being treated by a family physician without any specific extra training in emergency medicine. So on average, if you're interested in emergency medicine in your family practice program, you can swing about six months of emergency medicine in that two years. 
and that group represents two-thirds of the physicians providing emergency services in Canada. Now, most of them are going to be in smaller facilities that are a little bit quieter. Most of them are going to be practicing with a clinic or some other family medicine thing on the side, but two-thirds. And then 10%, according to 2015 statistics, were the FRCPCEM five-year people. And if you look at where they practice, almost all of them practice in larger tertiary care centers. Very few of them tend to wander off into smaller regional centers. And I've worked in about 50 or 60 emergency departments across this country so far. And I could probably count on one hand the number of times that I have bumped into an FRCPC emergency physician outside of a tertiary care, usually academic teaching hospital. And that leaves the bulk, which is what, about 23% or so of the population that is the CCFPEM. So family physician that have done a third year of residency training or family physician who's worked for a minimum of four years, a certain number of shifts per year. I think it works out to 400 hours per year. And then they're eligible to write the exam and they get that certification. So there are two routes to get that CCFPEM. But that's just a, what they call a CAC, a certificate of added competency that just helps establish that you have done a little bit of extra training and reading around emergency medicine and are a specialist, a mini specialist in that field. Now, if you look at regional centers or small centers, you will find those CCFPEM physicians. You will also find them in the academic centers. So there are very few hospitals in this country where I could not be hired because of my CCFPEM status. Now, when you look at those big downtown city hospitals like Vancouver General or wherever, it's going to be more competitive as a CCFP EM physician to try and get that job. It's probably, all else being equal, probably a little bit easier as an FRCPC physician to get that job. But they still hire these CCFP EM physicians. And many CCFP EM physicians work full-time as an emergency physician, either in large centers or regional or even small centers. It's kind of a hybrid between family practice. But of course, with your CCFP EM, because you trained as a family physician, you will be able to still practice in the larger scope of family practice if one day you decided to do so. Right, okay. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I recently heard that a lot of the, like the job prospects for emergency medicine aren't what they used to be about like five, ten years ago, and uh, some graduates from the FRCPC are having troubles finding jobs in like local centers, so they are moving to community hospitals. How are the CPSPEM doctors to get a, to compete with those spots? Um, just because I'm, I'm hearing that as at graduation, CPSPEM versus FRCPC, like who is more attractive and it's often the five-year trained physician. I think that's true, but I think you have to acknowledge a few different things. First of all, we're recording this in 2022, so there has been a global pandemic for the last two years now, and that has led to a lot of upheaval in every physician in terms of their retirement plans and whatnot. And so we're seeing that in a lot of specialties where there are not a lot of jobs for new graduates just because the old guard didn't retire on schedule and whatnot. So I think there is a little bit of a blip in that. But what you're saying is absolutely true. The rumor here in Calgary is that over the last couple of years, there have been very few or no job openings for a city of a million people in their four major emergency departments. 
And so when they go to hire for six positions, all of a sudden you now have two years worth of all of the specialist graduates and all of the CCFP EM graduates vying for jobs. And so of course it's competitive. I'll tell you right now, I applied for that and I got an interview no problem. And they told me straight up I was a very different type of applicant because first of all, I'm 15 years into practice. I am not just an emergency physician. I also practice anesthesiology. I have a fellowship in ultrasound. So I already have five years of postgraduate education. And in the end, I didn't get the position, probably because I told them straight up, I have no intention to work full-time emergency. I don't want to give up anesthesia or my rural practice. I really just want to drop in for a few shifts. And that was not what they were looking for. But if I had been, if I had been pushing hard for an academic job with this level of experience, I don't think it would have been an issue. So and that's really how it works with every job because yes as a new grad you want to think about how easy is it going to be to get a job but you're only a new grad for one or two years and after that you're developing experience and depending on what you've built your resume in you're going to become more or less attractive for whatever hospital is that is hiring you so I agree with what you're saying. I don't think it's a big deal. In Alberta here, if you went to not the largest hospitals in, say, Edmonton or Calgary, but you went to the next largest tier in Grand Prairie or Lethbridge or Red Deer, you would get a job no problem as a CCFPEM. If you went further afield into smaller communities now, like Drumheller or Cold Lake, they would hire you in a heartbeat as a CCFPEM, they would hire you in a heartbeat as a CCFP family physician who practices emergency medicine on the side. There is a national shortage of emergency physicians in this country, and you don't really have to go that far to find a department that is hiring. Okay. Yeah, that's it's, it's interesting that you're, um, you've done the extra five years after. So it's, it's almost like you have like the equivalent years of a FRCPC, but you've made yourself more like um, versatile. Correct. Um, and, and and that's something I, you know, I also wasn't aware that you can pursue fellowship opportunities as a CCFP Correct. position. I, I only thought those were reserved for the Royal College program. So fellowship really just means extra post-grad training. And you can do a fellowship in whatever somebody has offering a fellowship in. So you can go do a formalized fellowship, like for example, a two-year program for ICU, and you have to participate in the CARMS match and go through all that. And that's competitive. And I believe that's only available to residents in the FRCPC program. So if you told me, I want to be an ICU doctor, for sure you have to go the FRCP route, whether that's emergency medicine or one of the other specialties that take you in there. You cannot do that as a family physician. But that's the only one. I know family physicians who have gone on to do emergency medicine and then have gone to do a fellowship in simulation, in pre-hospital paramedical type studies. A fellowship does not have to be formalized and most of them have nothing to do with CARMS. So really it's a case of I have an interest in this, here's somebody who has an interest in teaching this and away you go. But it's not really that complicated and a lot of fellowships are done part-time. In fact, with the exception of ICU, I would say that all fellowships are done pretty much part-time where you're working part-time doing whatever it is you're now qualified to do, emergency medicine in this case, and part-time you're spending a few hours working on whatever that special skill is. In my particular case, it was advanced ultrasound. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I'm curious about the, like, the flip side of it. That Can the FRCPC 
physicians work in rural centers and like, like what are your thoughts on that? Can they do what you're doing? I think the answer is possibly, but I have not seen it. So again, in 15 years of practice in 60 odd emergency departments, I have only bumped into FRCP trained physicians a handful of times. And we're talking large departments. We're talking like places like Prince George, <clears throat> which is a tertiary care department, but it is also rural remote. And so that's an interesting place because family physicians with no particular training in emergency medicine are working there. But the vast majority have gone on to write their EM exam or did the year of residency training. And I believe there's one FRCPC qualified person now running that department. The other location where I believe I have run into them was in Cranbrook, which again is a regional center where you have a CT scanner and you have multiple surgical specialties and an ICU and Royal College anesthesia. These are essentially tertiary care centers or the next best thing, one step down from a tertiary care center. To get into smaller places as an FRCP physician, you run into a problem where there may not be enough work in the emergency department. Because as you get into smaller facilities, often there's only three shifts a day or two shifts a day or one shift a day. And if you're in a really small community and you're doing 24-hour emerge shifts because you only see 20 patients in 24 hours and most of them occur between 11 a.m. and 8 p.m., all of a sudden now as an FRCP emergency physician and all you practice is emergency medicine, you are taking potentially four or five of the seven shifts in that small community and that small community probably has GPs who want to do the occasional eMERGE shift. And so there's just not enough work for you. Now, if you're an FRCP and you are clever and you've done your extra training, because that's a requirement of your program, but you've done it in something like sports medicine and you open up a sports medicine clinic, then all of a sudden now you only need a couple of eMERGE shifts and maybe you're more competitive in a small community. But the reality is that you get to a certain size and you're too specialized to be able to work there. And I should also point out that as you get smaller, you lose the resources. So now there's no ICU under your roof. There may not be any surgeon or obstetrician under your roof. So therefore, if an emergency delivery comes in, that's you, which, you know, I will say is kind of a, a scary situation and thought if you haven't delivered a baby in the last 10 years, as I haven't. And you may not have the diagnostics. You may not have a CT scanner. You may not even have radiology ultrasound. You may just have plain films. And so it becomes a comfort thing. If you train for five years only in facilities where you have all of these surgical backups and all of this imaging, are you really going to feel comfortable in a location where you don't? And your closest CT scanner is now a 90-minute ambulance ride away. Yeah, that, that kind of begs the next question that I'm, I'm is the competency level on um, graduation. And, you know, like, like what you're saying is almost the opposite of what I thought. I, I thought FRCPC physicians are, um, they're like the most confident to handle the critically ill, the patients that need that ICU level care um, versus the new graduates from the CTSPEM program. Um, but it's almost like, the, like it's, it's different if you have a trained in a rural site. You're quite right. And the other thing we should point out is that that is the perception and that is probably what's communicated from, from the general medical community. 
but I don't know that it is true because here's what you need to know, Sarah. Emergency medicine, you don't actually see sick patients all that often. And sure, in a larger center like Victoria General, you're going to see a higher number of unstable patients than, say, a place like Tofino. But proportionately, it's going to be more or less the same. It's going to be less than 1% of your patients that are critically ill. And so when you're working one shift of seven or nine shifts in a 24-hour period, in Victoria General, you are less likely to see those critically ill patients because you're too busy dealing with the CTAS 3s and 4s, the belly pains and the sore throats and stuff, than say in Tofino where you are on for 24 hours, for example, and you're going to see everything that comes in. Or more to the point, you're in Tofino with no backup and therefore you have an arrangement with your colleagues whereby if somebody critically ill comes in, you just call and that person will come in and you will tag team this person together. And so my experience living in a small mountain town for three years as the only anesthetist, I got called for every critically ill patient and I was seeing somebody probably on average twice a week, which is unheard of in a full-time emergency physician training program. And yeah, this is the expectation. This is the perception that when you do your emergency residency, you will be trained in these things. And you are but the volume is super low. I did my CCFP EM residency year, and at the end of it, I certainly had done some resuscitation, but not nearly as much as I would have guessed that I would have done when I first went into it, just because the volumes are low. And you can measure this in many, many different ways. I mean, ask any emergency physician, how many times did you intubate a patient last year? And I think you'll find that outside of COVID times, less than 10 times per year. And that's because the volume's low. And if you're in a teaching hospital, you now have residents and you have medical students who are vying for these procedures. So often the staff gets even less because they always have a learner who's taking the first crack at it. So although we think that emergency physicians are the best resuscitationists, I would say that honestly, it's not nearly as good as we would perceive or hope that we are just simply because we don't get the same amount of volume. And so... This is where I want to drop a little bit of a bomb now because it was absolutely counterintuitive to me. Where I got really good at resuscitation was in anesthesia training. Because if you think about what a general anesthetic is, you're taking a person, you are paralyzing them, you are now having to secure the airway, get them onto a ventilator, you have to stabilize them throughout a surgery while they're having blood loss and various other issues. You get very good at all of those resuscitation procedures very, very quickly. And in the course of my anesthesia residency, I probably had 500 intubations in one year. And if I were practicing as an emergency physician, I don't know that I would intubate 500 people in my entire career after residency, which is kind of interesting, hey? And this isn't a slight against emergency physicians. I mean, absolutely, we are good resuscitationists, but we have low volume. And so unless that emergency physician is also practicing in another environment like ICU or anesthesia where you are constantly resuscitating or you're actively engaged in ongoing simulation training, your resuscitation skills are going to atrophy pretty darn fast regardless of how many years you spent in residency. Hmm. Right, wow. Yeah, that's, um, that's a, bit, a bit daunting to think about, but... Yeah, it makes sense. I can see that, especially working in my fourth and third years in the emergency department. Help me understand then the 
the reason why I, I've been hearing that there's this difference in um, just quote unquote street cred that uh, if you're a graduate from the FRCPC, you're you know instantly a bit more respected because of your skills upon graduation, um, and that there's like this kind of this different collegial environment than if you're a CCFTEM graduate. Or is that completely wrong? Have I misheard that? No, I think that's true. I think it completely depends on who the audience is. If you are a hiring committee for a large tertiary care hospital that has an FRCP program, without a doubt, you're going to have more street cred. You're going to have more respect as an FRCP graduate. If you leave that environment, and again, remember that that environment represents, I don't know, maybe 3% of emergency departments in Canada. As soon as you leave that, it changes drastically. And again, what you're talking about really is that sort of first job, first year of practice kind of experience level. Because once you go beyond that, it really doesn't matter what initials you have behind your name. No one really looks at that on your resume. They're looking at what have you done in the last few years. And if your resume says that you were with the Canadian forces flying in a helicopter in Mali picking up trauma patients, like I would take that 10 times over somebody who just graduated brand new from any residency program because right. it's experience. And so the qualification and what your residency says really doesn't matter that much the more years you have out in practice. Yeah, no, completely makes sense. Um, so to go back to what you were saying earlier in this, are you better trained as a five-year grad versus a three-year emergency medicine grad? Yes, you are, but that measurement is pretty difficult to sort out. I mean, really it's coming down to, hey, I've got this funky wrist fracture that you only see once in a blue moon and the FRCP person may know better what to do with that. But for the bread and butter stuff that you're seeing all the time, I think you're probably relatively equivalently trained. And from what I understand, the statistics say that if you fast forward five years, both of those emergency physicians will be basically indistinguishable in terms of how they're practicing. So there's only a very small gains to be had in that first five years. And again, if you graduate three years in and you compare yourself to your colleague who graduated at the five-year mark, you're already two years into that consolidation. Right. So, right. Yeah. I guess those, those two years as the CCFPEM, are they like stressful years? Are you like, because now you're staff and you don't have that, you know, other staff to chat with as a, as a resident would um, and it's kind of it's you to figure it out um, and then are you also like going home and having to read around constantly and, and build your skills because you yeah may just not know those extra fracture patterns and that that's a great question I would say it is 10% your training and 90% your personality if you are a laid-back person who doesn't really get flapped over anything, as most emergency physicians are, your stress isn't going to go up very much. And that extra two years of training will probably reduce your stress level by, you know, 10%. But if you're a super anxious person who has a hard time committing to things and you have to look everything up and double check and triple check and throw some salt over your shoulder, you're going to be anxious no matter what, you know? So 
so that's my observation. And bear in mind, everything I'm saying here is purely anecdotal based on my experience, right? Others may disagree with me, but that's my observation. I have met new grad specialists who are extremely anxious and not functioning very well, even though they are making very smart and informed decisions. They just haven't figured out how to master that yet, the fear of the unknown. Whereas you can have somebody who is brand new out of family medicine and are much more confident and yet still conservative and very safe. They just happen to be making a lot more phone calls for advice from specialists or whatever. And I have to say that's kind of what my experience was. In my first year or two, I made a lot more telephone calls to specialists saying, hey, I just want to run a case by you. And so I was probably a little bit slower. Was I a little bit less safe? No, I don't think so. I think the safety would have been probably equivalent, but I would have been a lot slower. But it didn't matter because my first year of practice was in Moose Factory in Northern Ontario, where we saw maybe 20 patients in 24 hours. And so I had almost unlimited time with every patient as compared to my first year of practice being in Sunnybrook, where I need to see a patient every 10 minutes. Otherwise, I'm letting my team down. Right, right. Because that's the ironic thing. What emergency medicine residency teaches you to be good at? is not the resuscitation. I mean, it helps, but what it teaches you to be good at is work well and be efficient in a busy environment. That's what it teaches you, which is kind of counterintuitive because when you sign up for emergency medicine, you think sickest patient, CPR, cracking somebody's chest, that stuff is so few and far between and completely overwhelmed by the volume of, oh yeah, I've got this belly pain for the last two years, or hey, I've been vomiting for 20 minutes, you've got to do something, or whatever, right? The non-resuscitation stuff. And so you get good at what you get exposed to. And that's true in residency, it's true in practice. If you want to be the world's best emergency medicine resuscitationist, then you should probably go train in South Africa or Detroit or something like that. Because that's where you're going to get that exposure for the years of residency. But if your goal is to be an emergency physician in Banff or in Victoria, then you're probably better off training in the Canadian system and getting good at the things that you're going to see in those communities, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, that that, makes sense so much. Let me me share a couple of other observations I've had over the years because I do have several friends who are residency directors, both the CCFPEM level, but mostly the FRCPC level. And here's some interesting things that I have been told. First of all, it doesn't take five years to teach emergency medicine. It really takes about three years. And if you look at what the United States is doing, and their emergency physicians are very well qualified, most U.S. programs are three years long, or if you are on an academic track, then you take a fourth year and you have a little bit more of a research academic kind of content. So three or four years in the U.S. And Historically, what I understand was that the FRCP emergency program in Canada was a four-year residency. And then what happened was they came out with this CCFP EM whippersnapper program. And the FRCP program in response decided to lengthen their program out to five years. And at that point, the residency was too long. So they took an entire year from that program and they now assign that to something else. And so in that program, you get to choose, yes, I want to do some ICU and tack some stuff on at the end, or I want to do sports medicine, or I want to do a master's in education, or I want to do my MBA, like whatever. They basically have this filler year, 
in the FRCP program. And a couple of residency directors have actually pointed this out to me. And now we're seeing this change where it used to be you write your exam at the end of five years, but now they're bringing it down to the end of the fourth year. So now you are qualified, you've passed your exam at the end of four years. You have one more year of residency training than the CCFPEM counterparts, yet you're still required to work your fifth year as a resident at resident yeah. wages. I mean, it seems, it seems to me like what we logically need to train good emergency physicians and what we are actually doing, there's a little bit of disconnect. And again, like I am not an FRCP qualified person. I'm not here to bash the programs. The graduates from FRCP programs across this country are fantastic. I have many, many friends who are graduates or active residents and they're fantastic people, fantastic physicians. I just worry that we are losing energy and as physicians a year of lost wages because of some sort of mm, political maybe or bureaucratic decision to have a program that is longer than it needs to be and so you know if you're making full use of that five years because you really want that extra year and be certified in doing whatever you know doing exercise stress tests or you know being a ambulance system supervisor doctor or whatever like more power to you but shouldn't it be structured in a way where you do your core knowledge first you write your exam and then you optionally take that extra year in whatever you're interested and not be forced to have that year you know so that's that's my one criticism of the frcp program and I'll tell you, you know, honestly, when I graduated, I would have loved to be an FRCPC physician. And I applied, but it was extremely competitive and I didn't even get an interview. And uh, it was a huge blow to my ego. And at the end of the day, though, what I have stumbled into by blind luck has been a far better fit for me than if I had gotten that FRCP program. So... It's interesting, right? Because as students, we've spent most of our lives in school. We are programmed to be overachievers. We're looking for the hardest, most difficult road. And yet it's a little bit of a silly academic game that we're playing in our own minds where the result in real life may not translate into this academic pursuit that we're enamored with when we're in medical school, you know? Right, yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I can actually rationalize the fifth year because it, it almost like counteracts the, the negatives or the con of the um, FRCPC route that you are locked in to do emergency medicine when you are 70 or 80. And it, it provides you that um, quote-unquote exit strategy uh, that maybe that the CCFP um, doctors already have because they can fall back onto their like, GP clinic route if they, you know, if they want to do that when like nearing retirement if that wasn't there would there be an exit strategy for emergency medicine doctors it's a good question when you talk about exit strategy i don't think that's the intention of that year but if you're smart and you're in a residency program like that you're trying to figure out a way to use it as your exit strategy right totally maybe yeah maybe poor choice maybe um like a, a way to balance your career because uh uh, when I, I chatted with an eMERGE doc in a rural site, and I said, you know, I'm applying to the FRCPC, I'm, like, super excited, and the first thing they said to me was, hey, do you know how uh, how many years until a, an eMERGE doc burns out? And I'm like, uh, and, I, you know, I, I know about the, the 10 to 15 years of practice is, like, the kind of what it's being seen in literature, 
And so, like, uh, going through school and knowing that the, like, the, what we're being, being told is that you have 15 years of practice and then you're going to burn out, um, it kind of makes me, like, think early on about what am I going to do to prevent that and um, having a balance and doing that fifth year is maybe something that that can help um, prevent that. But that's like one of the other daunting factors that we hear as medical students is the whole um, burnout uh, timeline. I think that is so prudent and insightful of you, Sarah. It is absolutely true. Not everybody burns out, but it is a very high percentage. And you can tell this. I mean, go to your academic emergency department, take a look at how many physicians there are that are in their 60s. And it's not going to be a very large number. I mean, if you're passionate and you love emergency medicine and you want to continue to work full time, fill your boots. You might be one of the lucky ones, but you don't really know if that's you or not until you get 10 years into it. And by that point, you now have a sense of, yeah, this is absolutely my passion. I want to be here every day. And honestly, I I don't think I've met anybody like that yet myself, but I'm sure they exist. More likely, you get to that point, you're like, yeah, this is tiring. What else can I do? And the beautiful thing is, if you've done family medicine, that will always be a door that's open to you. Even if you haven't worked in clinic or you haven't delivered a baby in 15 years, it's not a big deal to go and take two months and go hang out with somebody and just get refreshed on that, signed off so that you're eligible to go practice. Bigger deal if you have never done that training and now you go and you look at the requirements and it's like, oh, look, I'm going to need another 12 months of residency at age 45 in order to write an exam at age 46 in order to be able to practice family medicine. And that sucks. Now, you know, a lot of doctors go into emergency thinking, you know, I will never want to work in family practice. And and fair enough if you know that. But family medicine opens so many other doors other than just clinic. You can get passionate about psychiatry or oncology or sports medicine or anesthesia or whatever. I mean, palliative care, addictions, there, there is a huge open field of options and you can change. It's a little bit like the opportunity that nurses have where you become a nurse and then you say, hey, I want to work emergency. And so you go do some courses and it takes, I don't know, six months or whatever. And now you're an emerge nurse and you say, yeah, I'm getting tired of this. I want to do ICU. So you take a couple extra months and now you're an ICU nurse. And it's much easier to change back and forth. Medicine, much more difficult. But in medicine, family medicine is the easiest because there are so many opportunities for three or six or 12 month programs. And hey, look, now I'm a GP surgeon and I know how to take out appendixes and deliver babies and I can go live in some beautiful place like Pincher Creek and work part-time in Emerge and work part-time in the OR, you know? It's just so much more flexible, which is one of the huge advantages in my mind of doing the CCFP route. I know many FRCP residents who have looked at what I do and say, you know what, I wish that I could use my extra year to get certified in family medicine. But for whatever reason, that's very difficult. I know even more that I said, I wish I could use that year to do the GP anesthesia year. And yet for some reason, they're not eligible, which is weird because it's 12 months. And you'd think that after three years of emergency medicine, they would know enough as a family physician to be able to learn a year of anesthesia. But it's not possible. Right. Yeah. Can you elaborate how easy it is to switch around? I, I know a bunch of um, GPs that are also changed in addiction, but they only do addictions. And then I, I don't see many like that actually swap. And I'm, I'm just curious what that looks like. Like, 
does it take a year to get extra training and then you're like you're in the practice for two years and you're still not that comfortable so it's like a three-year or is it yeah i'm just curious what that looks like yeah you bet so no matter what residency you complete there will always be a consolidation period when you go from residency into practice and in general practice in rural medicine we say it takes about six months to a year and then you're going to begin to feel pretty comfortable and of course it only gets more and more comfortable thereafter but that really steep learning curve takes place in the first six or 12 months and i imagine that's pretty similar to most specialties but i don't know so if you're changing now within family medicine from one specialty to a new specialty say addictions medicine how easy is it to get the training pretty darn easy. I mean, first of all, if you're changing into that specialty, it probably means you have an eye to a certain location of practice that you want to join. So you say, hey, look, I live in my small town of Fort St. Nowhere, and we are short of GP anesthetists. So if I go away for a year and get my training and come back, I'm going to work here as a GP anesthetist alongside my buddy, and we're going to split call one week on, one week off, whatever, right? You know exactly what you're coming back to. And you've already been working there and practicing there, so you know how the system works. So really, you're just coming back as a staff doc after that year with a new skill set to integrate into a system that you already have an intimate knowledge of. And I would say that's probably true of everything once you're in practice contemplating going back because you've already done that six to 12 months consolidation. And that was certainly my experience. I worked for a couple of years before I went and I did my anesthesia training. And there was a little bit of a learning curve in terms of, hey, I'm the only person in this town. The next closest anesthetist is 100 kilometers away. I better not mess this up. But honestly, it maybe took like a month to figure that out. It was nothing compared to that initial entry into practice. Because honestly, Canadian residency prepares you very well for the job at hand, whether you're talking about being a GP anesthetist or a emergency physician through the CCFP EM route or anything else. You are very well prepared. Sarah, there's one other thing you asked about and I didn't really address, and that is how difficult is it to get these extra training programs after you've graduated your family medicine? And I would say for the most part, it's pretty darn easy. I'd say the only really competitive program is the CCFP EM residency program, which is kind of irrelevant because if you go practice for four years and meet the criteria, you can just study and challenge the exam. And if you're three years into that path and you have the opportunity to do your year of residency, I would say don't. I would say just finish off your four year study and write that exam. But everything else that I'm aware of, the surgical program, the anesthesia program, the palliative care, these are not highly competitive. I mean, you may have to apply through CARMS. It may be, you know, four applicants for three spots kind of thing, but it's not like a hundred applicants for four spots. So it's pretty easy. Right, right. Do you have any um, recommendations on where to work if you are one of those family physicians who didn't say they applied to the CCSPEM, they didn't get in, and now they want to work for those three to four years, Do you, like, should they work in like um, a community hospital? Should it be rural? Do you have any kind of advice on that? I would suggest they go see my buddy Dirk in Dawson Creek. Dawson oh, Creek, okay. Northern BC, it's a busy community hospital, but it's remote enough that they have a very difficult time getting emergency physicians. It is a lovely community. They love to support you. 
you would have a wonderful time. You'd make big bucks because you get that northern isolation allowance. Go check out Dawson Creek. Now, Dawson Creek is representative of probably 50 or 100 rural hospitals. Go pick something that is a little bit larger but is supportive and is going to help you achieve your goals, i.e. give you that comfort and support and give you the volume that you want in terms of getting some experience so that you can apply next year or you can just begin to prepare that exam. There's one other thing I should mention because, again, we don't talk about this in medical school very often, but there's actually a large number of opportunities to re-enter residency and go back and become a specialist. So in my career, I have been invited to go train as a radiologist, as an ophthalmologist, as a full specialty anesthesiologist, and probably more if I thought about it because I have always been affiliated with communities that were in need. And so the idea would be, hey, you go top up your residency and finish your radiology training. We will take a five-year return of service or whatever, and then you're good to go. And this is not uncommon. If you're in a community where there is a need and they can't recruit a specialist, you often get these opportunities where you could go and do whatever your top-up training is. So typically they give you one year of credit for your family medicine because of the the rotating internship year quote unquote and then you just make up the balance so food for thought if you start down the family medicine route you are not necessarily locked into family medicine there will be opportunities and it might be a little bit of a headache but you will get there in the end if you truly want to become a specialist right right yeah or um like in mental health and uh, those areas as well. Absolutely. I know several psychiatrists who were GPs and then practiced GP psychiatry and enjoyed it so much that they actually went back and did their psychiatry training. So that's another example of where you can go and get that specialty training. Right, right. I didn't even know GP psychiatry was a thing. Exactly. There's pretty much GP anything. I don't know if there's GP neurosurgeon, but there are GPs with extra training in just about everything. And the way we're paid... It's fee-for-service. So if you're doing the same service as a specialist, you get paid pretty much the same. The only place where you don't get paid is for a specialty consultation. So as a GPA, if I do the same surgery as a specialist anesthesiologist, I get paid the same amount, except I work in a rural community, and therefore I get paid a percentage premium on top of what I do because I'm remote. The only thing I can't do is bill a specialist consult. So, you know, I make... $20 less per consult than the specialist who went to school for, you know, three years more than I did in order to do their job. And that's the only difference. And I think that's pretty much true across the country. I mean, don't quote me on that. Check into it if this is important information. A lot of weight and time and energy is put into these titles, but when it really comes down to it, those titles don't mean much. They don't mean as much as we think they do. Yeah, that's well noted. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, no problem. Um, I'm curious about the uh, prospects for research and academic um, research specifically as a CCFPEM graduate. Do you, do you know if, like, can CCFPEM graduates work in academic research and administrative positions within, like, emergency medicine departments? 100%. You know, one of the greatest... Okay escape routes for a emergency physician is switching into academia or into administration. And when I think about the larger tertiary care centers I worked in, 
more often than not, it was the CCFPEMs who happened to be the head of the department or whatever, probably because the CCFPEMs represented a larger proportion of the emergency physicians in that department, if that makes sense. So there was no restriction. And I think once you're a member of the department, the qualification you have really is meaningless and your reputation is now based on how you practice and are you collegial and are you safe and are you pulling your weight. So I don't think it makes a difference in internal department or medical school type decisions in terms of the job. In terms of research, to me it seems to be irrelevant where you work or what your training is. Either you're passionate about research or you're not. And so if you are the type of person who's passionate about research, you're probably going to find some sort of interesting question to ask in whatever environment you work in. And so if you are working in Victoria General, then your question might be something about old people and hearts because it's such a high volume and you see it all the time. But if you are that same equivalently trained emergency physician and you're now working in Nunavut, then your question may very well be, what is the outcome of First Nations and Indigenous people when they receive the standard ACLS protocol that was obviously built on research designed around an ethnic group that was not, you know, you know, do you know what I mean? And so what I'm trying to say is as a researcher, all you have to have is the time and the ambition, and then you go apply for funding, and then you choose questions surrounding whatever interests you. So in Nunavut, you're probably not going to do a giant RCT about thrombolizing pulmonary embolism because your volume's too low, but you're going to find a whole world of untapped questions that you could begin to research, many for probably a lot less money and a lot less work because the tip of the iceberg has barely been addressed in that type of population in that type of emergency medicine environment, right? Right. 99 point something percent of emergency medicine research applies to academic centers with highly trained emergency physicians in a certain protocol investigating a very specialized thing. And that has very little application to the patient population or the physician population that are providing that similar service in Fort St. Nowhere in rural Canada, right? I think research is completely independent. Either you're a researcher and you make the time and the effort or you're not. And it really doesn't matter what training you have or where you work. Right. Okay. Yeah, that, that makes sense. It's not so much the letters behind your name, but the passion and yeah, that makes sense. Um, well, thank you for like debunking all this. I feel like we, we have access to so many resources for the FRCPC route, but for the like CCFPEM route, it's a lot of, um, like word of mouth or just Googling like questions and going on forums mm-hmm. uh, because yeah, it's often we don't reach those program directors until we're in our family medicine residency. And, yeah, yeah, I agree. And that's something we should probably as a profession be trying to change. I hope that this episode is helpful to students and residents who are interested in this stuff. And if there's specific questions, feel free to contact me and we can try and address those. If I don't have that experience, if you want to know about addictions medicine, which I'm not trained in, happy to go and try and find somebody to come on the podcast and talk about that. So if you ask your questions, we'll see what we can do. So if you are interested in emergency medicine but can't get the CCFPEM residency spot, there are many other opportunities for you to go and work for three months in 
what's called the NEEP program, the Nanaimo Enhanced Emergency Procedures course, or the there's one in Prince George now, and I'm sure many other universities offer them as well. Three months, you get exposure to procedures, you get exposure to simulation, and you get that push and that comfort. And that would do a really great job of getting you on your way, preparing you to write that exam. So eventually you do have your CCF PEM, and yet it doesn't take 12 months. And again, you know, you have to apply. It's a little bit competitive, but not like the residency competitive. So ultimately, it probably comes down to more of identifying what your interest is, trying to figure out what you're going to do with that interest, where you're going to work with it, and then just contacting your local university and finding out, hey, where do I go to get this training, right? And again, I would say, you know, if anybody is a family medicine resident thinking, do I apply to emergency medicine? It's so competitive. I really want to be good at resuscitation. I want to work in a smaller community. I'm not trying to compete to get back to Nanaimo or Lethbridge or whatever. I would say, think about anesthesia because I had no concept until I actually got into the anesthesia program that you are going to become an amazing resuscitationist. I woke up one day, two months in, and I said, holy smokes, I have done more intubations in two months than I did in everything prior to this, including my emergency medicine residency and several years of working. And you get so good. Plus, you have that anesthesia skill, which is not something you can just pick up on your own. You do need residency training for that. Anesthesia is in short supply. You are going to enable any surgical hospital community of which there are dozens in every western province um, and all of them are looking for extra anesthesia support and it's going to make you one hell of an emergency physician and resuscitationist in the process so i'm just throwing that out there if anybody's thinking about em or having trouble getting into em look very carefully at the gp anesthesia program fantastic program gives you a very complementary skill set that will push you above and beyond what you can accomplish with just that one year of emergency medicine practice. And if you're not looking to compete for a job in a more popular location, you're not looking to go to a department where efficiency matters, the anesthesia program hands down is going to better prepare you. Right. And competitive to get into? Well, you know, in my year, there were four applicants for three positions. This past year in Calgary, there were two applicants for three positions. So not really. And unlike the Emerge program where I worry that as a graduated physician trying to get back into residency, it may be a bit of a disadvantage. In anesthesia, as a practicing physician trying to get back into your anesthesia residency, I think it's probably a bit of an advantage. That certainly was the case in UBC when I was applying. They actually preferred to take the people who had a bit of experience and had a solid plan of knowing where they were going afterwards to practice. They're a little bit more leery of training you if you're a new grad because there's no guarantee that you're going off to a rural place, which doesn't mean you shouldn't apply, but it's nice to show up if you say, yes, I'm absolutely passionate about going to Laclabish in order to practice. I've already talked to them. I've got a job lined up. I think that's going to really strengthen your application for a skill like GP anesthesia, which is purely for rural communities. And I should point that out too, because for a comprehensive conversation here, if somebody is contemplating GP anesthesia, you cannot use GP anesthesia with very few exceptions. You cannot use it in an urban center. There's just way too much politics and whatnot. Plan on working in a smaller community that is a GPA center. Even when these larger cities that are absolutely deplete of FRCP anesthesiologists 
They've got two out of 12 on a full roster crying out for help. They do not seem to want to hire GPAs. And there's just too much politics and weirdness going on there. So if you're thinking about GPA, plan on going to a smaller location that is a GPA hospital. If you're not sure what that is, then talk to your uh, local medical association about that. For example, the Alberta Medical Association can give you a list of all of the hospitals that have GPAs. And not just that, but all the hospitals are actively hiring. And I'm sure any province can do that for you as well. Remember that GPAs only exist in Western Canada. Well, no, that's not true. They do exist in Newfoundland, and I believe they're opening the policies in PEI, maybe, but not in Nova Scotia, not in New Brunswick, to my knowledge, not in Quebec. So you are a little bit restricted in that regard, but every territory, every other province, to my knowledge, uses GPAs, is short for GPAs. It offers amazing job security. Right, wow. Sarah, thanks for letting me go down that rabbit hole. I know we're not talking about anesthesia today, but it's complimentary, and I think it's important to make that aware to the larger audience. Well, no, totally. And I guess someone that's interested in the CCSPEM, knowing that there is other options to get that kind of resuscitation um, aspect in my career. That's like something that I didn't really realize GPA was so um, available. I, it's also not really talked about in medical school. So. For Thank sure, no. for sure. Because I'll tell you, in BC, there are about 80, 80 GP anesthetists in the entire province. And the closest GPA to Vancouver would be Squamish or Seashelt. And so that's a long way away. We are not involved in teaching in medical school classes. We are just not really a known entity. And Unfortunately, many medical schools have this bias where you are taught by not just specialists, but often subspecialists in their field, and you tend to not get that generalist kind of exposure. You get a real underrepresentation of rural needs and rural interests. And I'm not picking on any medical school in particular. I think it's a, a systemic challenge that medical schools struggle with, but that is part of the bias. And Remember this, as a medical student, as a resident, you are going to be biased by what you're exposed to. And when I trained 20 years ago, the culture was not that healthy. We would get these specialists presenting and they would start by saying, oh, here's a case that the GP missed. And it was very anti-family medicine. And hopefully that has changed a lot in the last 20 years, but it was a little bit disconcerting. But as a medical student, be aware that you are slowly being brainwashed by the biases of your presenters and your mentors and your preceptors. And you're not getting that 100% balanced view of the entire medical system. So look for podcasts and try and keep yourself balanced and explore things that you don't necessarily get exposed to in medical school if you think it might be of interest. Right, right, yeah. Thank you, yeah, we don't get much time to uh, take a pause and reflect. So yeah, it's just important sure. to do. So thank you again. Yeah, no problem. No problem. Is there anything else on your list that we haven't covered? No, that's, those are my main questions and concerns. Um, so no, I, I, I'm like, I'm, I have a lot to think about, honestly, after this chat. I, yeah, there's been a lot of things debunked. And yeah, still like, I have a lot of interests. I want to do Indigenous health, addictions, rural medicine. But I, I love emergency medicine. So, and I love staying in the city, so I, but yeah, I think, um, 
<laughs> no worries. When you say you love to stay in the city, is it that you love to be in the city or you love to practice medicine in the city? Because those are two very different things. Right. So I love to live in the city because my family's here. And I I know I want to have a family of my own and send my kids to a school in the city. And um, those are, and then like also I'm, you know, in the community with soccer and all the sports teams here. That's, but I, you know, I love the medicine of rural medicine and rural medicine. I find that super interesting. But the actual like lifestyle outside of that, I think I'm more situated to the city. So it's like a kind of a back and forth. I, I think. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. Um, I will tell you, there are so many rural physicians I know, many of them rural locums, who have their permanent home on Vancouver Island or wherever they want to live. And they then take contracts in whatever remote location for X number of weeks or X number of months. And so you spend your winter in Victoria, if that's what you want to do, but you then spend your spring in Inuvik or whatever. And rural medicine pays well enough that you can do this. You can get away with this, especially when you factor in that as a locum, you're not paying overhead you don't have those ongoing costs. And so don't underestimate the opportunities there as well. It gets a little bit more tricky when you have children, as I have just gone through. When my kids were really young, it was very difficult to justify going away for a week at a time. And if I'm going a thousand kilometers away, I can't be going for much less than a week at a time. It just doesn't make sense. But it was very challenging when I had 18-month-old or a two-year-old And so from a personal standpoint, that's when my family, because we were in Victoria before and I was working a little bit of Emerge in Victoria and I was taking these week-long locums away and that worked great before kids. But then when the kids got to the wrong age for that, we then made the decision, let's move. And so we moved to our little community in the mountains. And for that three years and with young toddlers that are preschool, It was an amazing opportunity. We would open our back gate and our home bordered onto this giant forest reserve, like a billion acres of forest reserve. And we'd go literally out of our gate and onto a community path of which uh, 10 people might use it every day. And we were actually in the wilds. And so with young kids, that worked out to be an amazing opportunity. And then as my oldest approached kindergarten age, We decided we need to move to a location with better schools. And so we relocated to a similar type of location now, outside of Calgary now. But we have the school set up. And yet with a six-year-old and a four-year-old now, the kids seem to tolerate me going away for a week at a time. And so I'm back to that same locum position. So for most of my career, I have never really lived in the place where I practice, if that makes sense, or only minimally so. It is whatever you negotiate. And so if the Northwest Territories is going to pay for your flight to go all the way up to Inuvik, they probably want you for a minimum of two weeks, ideally a month or longer, just because of the costs. And when I was young and single, that was no problem at all. 
with young kids, I don't want to do that. They don't want to pay for me. No big deal. I don't go to a new Vic at the moment, but there is no shortage of communities in Northern Alberta and I'm sure any province that would let me come for as many days as I want. And the way it's structured now is they pay for your accommodation while you're in the community and they pay you a government mileage reimbursement kind of program based on how far you have to drive or they reimburse you for your flights or whatever it is. So I'm not out of pocket to go and practice in a remote community but I get all of the usual benefits. I'm dealing with a population that is generally a little bit more realistic about life than urban populations, which are sometimes a little disillusioned about what life is and what they should expect. And I get paid a rural premium for working in remote communities because that's how most provinces and territories work. They give you a little bit of an incentive to try and encourage doctors to get out into these smaller communities. And so the only thing it really costs me is my travel time. I'm not paid for my travel time, but in British Columbia, I believe they even pay you for your travel time. So it doesn't take much to give you a really quality experience well away from your permanent home. And you can decide, hey, I want to work three weeks out of every month, or I want to work one week out of every month. And there's no shortage of demand. You just have to negotiate what it is you want to do. Right. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah, I didn't know that either. No, it is awesome. And as you say, it's one of those things that you don't really get to hear about in medical school because medical schools are located in urban centers. I mean, even even rural medical schools like Nausum in Ontario, Thunder Bay is a giant city, right? It's tertiary care hospitals, right? I mean, you can't have a medical school outside of that, but you don't get that exposure. And that's that's a real problem. I think that's why rural medicine suffers the way it does. Right. Yeah, and I think um, the last two years, the conferences, like the Society of Rural and Remote Medicine conferences, I went to those in my first two years, and I, I was able to meet a lot of the representatives of communities and, like, learn a lot more. And I think had they been going on this year, I, th- with the, I, I think it would have been a bit different. Like, in, in-person conferences would have been really nice. But, yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure, for sure. COVID has complicated everything for us, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no. <laughs> Anyways, thank you again. I like, yeah, I can't. This is uh, yeah, with Carm's coming up soon, so I I'm, uh, I'm excited to figure it out. 